Thank you so much to the Kids Church team for reading that for us. If I haven't met you before, if I haven't had that privilege, I'm Ben, I'm the community pastor here, and I have the privilege of taking us through the final message in our series, The Final Days of Jesus, The Week That Changed the World. Now, just a quick disclaimer here. We're opening up Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 53. And most of what happens in those verses happens on Easter Sunday. But the last few verses when Jesus ascends, we know from Acts chapter 1 that that's actually 40 days later. So maybe the subtitle should have been the couple of months that changed the world. But it's not quite as catchy. So just wanted to let you know, most of it's on Easter Sunday, and then 40 days later, Jesus ascends to heaven. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, if you want to put your passcode in, open them up, power them up, open the app, or if you're more traditional like me, you can uh, open up the book itself, up to Luke 24. It'd be good to have that open today because I'm just going to spend some time just with this open, just telling the story and making points as we go along. So I'm not going to put everything up on the screen. If you can get that in front of you, Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 53. Now, on a serious note, I want to ask you whether you've ever experienced what I call the fog of death, the fog of death. Have you ever experienced what it's like to to lose someone that you love deeply? I don't know about you, but I remember uh, experiencing that when uh, my cousin a few years ago, quite young, died unexpectedly. It was tragically, it was quite tragic. I just remember having this, this fog around me during that time losing track of time, losing track of the days. Everything kind of tunnel visions into just that moment. All you care about is just being with family, thinking about what's happened, asking why, praying to God, asking for God to comfort and to help us. I experienced what I would call the fog of death, just this confusion, this sadness, this despair. And I think if you've experienced that before, you can relate to what the disciples, the followers of Jesus were experiencing in this story. Their beloved Messiah, their rabbi, Jesus, had three days earlier been sentenced unjudgedly to death and put to death by the Romans. And so in this story, you can see that they're in a place of despair. They're in a place of confusion, trying to put the puzzle pieces together like Caroline said. It didn't make sense. How could their Messiah have suffered and died? But you know, something amazing happens in this story that turns their confusion into clarity, that turns their despair into joy by the end, that turns their despair and their fear into confidence. What happens? What causes this change? Well, obviously, we know that they saw the resurrected Jesus. But there's more than that going on. And if you want a strong foundation in life that will hold when despairs and sorrows and suffering comes your way, if you want greater confidence about the calling God has placed on your life, if you want to have a joy that abides despite what you face and the suffering and the obstacles you face, then you will really want to come to terms and get a grip on our passage today because this is what the resurrected Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 24. So we're going to open it up together. And in the first scene, we see that Jesus redirects his followers. 
Jesus redirects his followers. And so what we see as the scene opens, we see two disciples, two followers walking on a road out of Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. It's about an 11-kilometer journey, about two hours. One of them's called Cleopas, not a very important person in the Bible. We only hear about them once or twice. And the other disciple is unnamed. They're a nobody. We don't even know who they are. But they're walking along this path, and they're confused. They're feeling that fog that I was talking about. They're wondering, how could this happen? And Jesus comes alongside them and walks along them on the path. Now, it's interesting that our text says that they were kept from recognizing him. The assumption is that God has blinded them to the identity of Jesus. They can't see who it really is. We don't know how, but I'll tell you a reason why God might have done that a little later on. But for now, just know that as they're walking along the path and this person comes up beside them, they don't realize that it's the resurrected Jesus. And he comes alongside them and says, what are you guys talking about? And they say to him, they're kind of, you know, when, you, when you're grumpy or you're upset, you're disappointed, you're kind of a bit gruff, you're a bit blunt, you're like, are you serious? Jesus, have you been living under a, well, a stranger? Have you been living under a rock? Do you not know what has happened in Jerusalem these past few days? And, and Jesus says, oh, what things? Kind of playing along. And they, they say this to him in verses 19 and following. They said, what things, he said. He says, they say, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Can you see what their big struggle is there? They believe Jesus was a great prophet. They believe Jesus was God's promised Messiah, but they said that Jesus was sentenced unjustly and put to death. They did not have a category in their minds for a suffering, crucified Messiah. They couldn't put those puzzle pieces together. They couldn't understand that. Some people had seen the grave was empty, but no one had seen Jesus alive yet, and they were puzzling over these things. And Jesus' response to them is quite interesting. He actually rebukes them. He says to them in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What would that have been like to be there? For that two-hour trek out of Jerusalem, walking with Jesus as he opens up the scriptures, he opens up the Old Testament and he shows them all the places that show them that the Messiah actually had to suffer. That would have been the most amazing Bible study to be a part of in those two hours and that walk. And we don't know what scriptures Jesus pointed them to, but I could imagine him coming alongside them and saying, how foolish you are. Have you not read Isaiah 53? 
where it says that the servant of the Lord, it says that he was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. It says in verse four, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. It says in verse five, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Come on, guys, you know these scriptures. How can you not understand that the Messiah had to suffer? And as they kept walking, perhaps he opened up Psalm 22. And he said to them, do you not remember what David wrote when he said this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Didn't Jesus say those words on the cross? Do you really think that David's Psalm was just a personal prayer diary? Or do you not realize that the Holy Spirit was with David, leading him to write the very words of God, leading him to prophesy of someone to come? And it says in Psalm 22, it says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, just like they mocked Jesus at the cross. It says in verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. This was written a thousand years before Jesus. Verse 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. I can just imagine him walking with them and say, did not that happen to your Jesus that they divided his garments and cast lots? over them. How foolish you are. How slow of heart are you to believe all that has been written. The Messiah, it was prophesied that the Messiah would suffer. And this is the first place that we see that Jesus redirects his followers. Jesus redirects his followers from basing their faith on their experiences to basing their faith on the word of God. And I think this is why he didn't reveal himself to them immediately. Because if he revealed himself to them immediately, they would have just had another experience to base their faith on. But our experiences, they shift and change like the waves of the sea, do they not? They do experience, they do see Jesus later on, but what God really wants them to do is to base their faith on the unshifting, unchanging word of God. And I wonder for you this morning, I wonder where your faith is based. I wonder where you find the strength to believe in Jesus. Maybe for you, you had an amazing experience at a camp or a conference and you heard about Jesus and you came to faith and it was a powerful moment and that's something you look to. If that's you, praise God. But experiences shift and change. Maybe for you, it's, a believer, a leader, a pastor that you know, and, and if you, as long as you see them going well, you feel like Jesus is real. But if they have a massive falling out from faith, it would hurt you big time. Where is your faith based? If your faith is not first and foremost grounded on the word of God, Jesus is redirecting you this morning. He wants you to know this book. So how are you going in that area? How are you going? Is the Bible part of your everyday life? Are you reading it regularly? Is it part of your rhythm? I know for some of you here this morning, it is. And it regularly warms your heart. It's something that you can't see yourself living without for more than a few days. But for others of us, this is the most boring and tedious book in existence. It's so difficult to get into. It's so hard to understand. And you just find it so hard to get motivated to read it. Why is that? 
Why is it that some love it? It warms their hearts. And why is it that others just find it boring and tedious? Well, I believe that it's because God has opened the eyes of some to see Jesus in the scriptures. That's why they love it. That's why they find it thrilling because they see Jesus in this book. So if you're here this morning and you aren't regularly in this book, if it's not part of your life, part of your faith, if you find it boring and tedious, you might wanna ask God this morning to open your eyes, just like he did for the disciples in verses 31 to 32. It says, it's on the screen as well, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? If you don't find any joy from reading this book or any motivation, ask God to open your eyes to the scriptures, to open your eyes to see Jesus in this book and get into it. Give him thanks and get into this this precious treasure, this word of God. And if you need help, if you need tools, we are so here to help you as a church. We would love to equip you to get people around you. If you need people to read with you, whatever it takes to get you reading the Bible regularly, we would love to equip you as a church. And if you're here this morning and this book does warm your heart and it is a regular part of your life, praise God. That's not any credit to you as a person, that's a credit to the Holy Spirit who is at work in you. So give God thanks that he is at work in your life. That is wonderful. Let's jump back into the story. So these followers of Jesus, they're walking along with him and, and the day is getting dark and they're arriving at the town of Emmaus and Jesus acts as if he's going to go a little further. But they urge him, they've loved hearing what he's saying. They urge him to stay with them. They say, it's getting dark it's dangerous down the road. Come and stay with us, have a meal with us, stay with us this night and you can leave tomorrow. And so he comes with them. But something peculiar happens at this meal. Jesus was the guest, they were hosting Jesus. But in the story, Jesus takes the role of host. He takes the bread. He gives thanks, he breaks it, he gives it out. Why is he doing this? Is he being obnoxious? No. The reason he does that, that he takes the role of host is because again, he wants to redirect his followers in something. He wants to teach them something. And I'm just gonna read to you what it says in verse 30 when he does that. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the role of host. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And that sounds like a very normal action to do, but actually these combinations of words are loaded with meaning, they're loaded. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. That combination of words happens two other times in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter nine, during the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus multiplies bread and feeds all these people, he took bread then, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And then in Luke chapter 22, in the Last Supper, where Jesus broke bread there, as well. So what's he trying to do by taking this role of host? What's he communicating to them? Well, we need to understand those two events. In Luke chapter nine, it comes just after he sent them on their missionary journey. And they're there, they're out in this desolate place and the disciples come up to Jesus and they say to him, we need to send the people away. It's getting late, they don't have any food. They're probably hungry and they need to go to the villages to buy food. 
But Jesus says to them, he says, you give them something to eat. And they're kind of like, what? They're just thinking literally and physically. They're like, how are we going to get enough money to feed 5,000 men alone, let alone the women and the children? But Jesus is always doing something a bit more. And he actually wants to teach them a spiritual lesson. He does multiply physical bread. But what he's teaching them is that he wants them to have the responsibility. He says to them, you are responsible to give them something to eat. You are responsible to give them the spiritual bread, the bread of life. He commissions them. He reminds them of the mission that he has for them. That's Luke chapter 9. Then in Luke chapter 22, we realize what this bread is. Do you remember what Jesus did at the Last Supper? He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And what did he say about the bread? He said, this is my body given for you. This is my body given for you. In other words, the bread, it symbolizes a crucified Messiah. It symbolizes the very thing that they were so puzzled about that they thought was not possible. And so Jesus brings these two images together when he takes the role of host in our story. And it's as if he's giving them bread again. He's redirecting them back into the mission, the vocation, the role that they were supposed to be taking up. What were they doing out in Emmaus? They were meant to be back in Jerusalem, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, to empower them for the mission of God. He redirects them. He recommissions them. He gives them bread again. And he shows them that this bread was his body given for them, that the cross was not the defeat of Jesus. It was not simply a tragedy. It was his victory. It is the news at the very center of the gospel, which they were supposed to proclaim. And then he disappears. They recognize him and he disappears. And so they literally get redirected physically. They, they head back to Jerusalem running. It says that they like got up immediately. I don't think they even finished their meal. They were that excited. Don't know if they even checked out from their motel. They just ran with joy, leaping, going back to tell the other disciples in Jerusalem about what had happened. That's our first scene where Jesus redirects his followers. In our second scene, Jesus reassures his followers. So as we pick it up in this scene, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they run back. They're so excited to tell the people that they had seen the risen Jesus that their mission was still on. And as they run into this gathering of disciples, they get interrupted. The other disciples tell them first, actually, guys, do you know what has happened? Jesus has appeared to Peter. And they come in, they're like, what? Jesus just appeared to us. We were just on the road with him. He was opening up the Old Testament. We ate a meal with him. Remember what he, when he did that at the Lord's Supper? He broke bread and gave it to us. And as they're explaining all these things, Jesus appears in their midst again. And he says, peace be with you. But they're feeling anything but peace. They're startled. They're frightened. People don't just pop up in the room like that. They think it's a ghost. He says, be at peace, but they're not feeling any peace. And he reassures them. He goes on to show them he's not a ghost. He's not a nice spiritual metaphor about new life. He's not a hallucination. He's the real physical resurrected Jesus. He shows them his hands. He shows them his feet. He asks for a piece of fish. He eats it. He shows them that this is real, that he has been resurrected from the grave. Now, why did he show them this? Why does he reassure the disciples of his resurrection? 
Does he do this to just give them peace? Does he do this simply so that they can fit the puzzle pieces together in their minds? Well, he does it for more than that. We read about it in verse 45 and following. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He wants them to know those scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And guess what, guys? You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. It wasn't just the 11 who became the great apostles that were there. There was Cleopas there. There was the unnamed disciples there. There was probably a bunch of uh, Jesus' female followers there as well. And he tells them, you are witnesses of these things. And I think Jesus wants to say that again to us today here at Bray Park Community Church. You are witnesses to Jesus. You might not have seen him physically resurrected, but you have the same scriptures that they had that he pointed to. You are witnesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God's king, that he has risen from the grave. So how are you going in this area? Sometimes we call it evangelism or the mission of God. How are you doing? Is there someone in your life that you are regularly praying for? Are you looking for opportunities to share this good news with others? Are you looking around your circles of influence at work and whatnot and making that extra effort to love people and build relationship with them, whether it's in your retirement village, at your school, or at your workplace, wherever it is, Jesus has called us to be witnesses to him. Now, you might find evangelism witnessing pretty scary. Hands get clammy, heartbeat starts rising, freaks you out, makes you a little bit anxious. Well, listen along to this last scene because I think this gives us a really great encouragement in this area. So we've just looked at the fact that Jesus reassures his followers and commissions them. And then we look at this final scene where Jesus reigns over his followers. Jesus reigns over his followers. And I'm just gonna read this part out. It's only a few verses. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. They started off our story confused, despairing, and they end our story joyful, back in public at the temple, praising God for what he had done through Jesus. But don't you think that their joy in this scene is a little bit odd? I mean, when you see someone you love is leaving you for a long time, someone you deeply love, it's often mixed with a fair bit of sadness as well. If you're going to send your kid off to university somewhere else in another state or another country, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also very sad because you're not gonna see them for a while. But in this story, there doesn't seem to be one hint of sadness. Their best friend, their savior, their king is leaving them, but they just seem to be joyful, worshiping, praising God. Why is that? Well, I think it's not as easy for us to understand because as people in the 21st century, we read about the ascension of Jesus 
And we just think, okay, so he floated off into the sky. Don't really know what that means, but he floated off and he went to heaven. Okay, cool. But for them, they knew that heaven was God's throne room. Heaven was the place of God's throne. So when Jesus ascends to heaven, this is another affirmation that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Messiah. This is kind of like his coronation moment. He's ascending to the throne. His crown is being placed on his head and he's seated in the throne in the heavenly places far above every other rule and authority reigning for his followers good. We read about this in Ephesians chapter one. It says this, he raised, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, far above the Jewish religious powers, far above the power of Rome, far about the real evil powers, Satan, sin and death and every name that is invoked, every false God out there. Jesus is seated above all of it, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for the good of the church. Jesus reigns in heaven over everything for the good of his church. In other words, if this Jesus, if this resurrected ruling King Jesus is for you, who can be against you? Coming back to that point about evangelism before, if your hands get clammy, you worry about what your friends at school might think of you if you are too Christian, remember, Jesus reigns. If you're worried about work being excluded from the, the, the in crowd there because you don't wanna identify with Jesus too much, remember, don't be intimidated. Jesus reigns. Whatever freaks you out about evangelism or whatever worries you in this life at all, remember, Jesus ascended to the throne. Jesus reigns over his followers. That's our final scene. So let's come full circle. I said at the beginning of our time together this morning that if you want a strong foundation that will keep you when sorrow and suffering strike, if you want confidence about your calling from God, if you want joy even in the midst of despair, you'll wanna hear about this passage. Can you see what has happened to give you those things? Jesus has happened. Jesus came alongside of the followers on the road to Emmaus and he grounded them back in the foundation of the scriptures. He put them in a place that is firm and rock solid despite whatever they may face in life. Jesus reassured his followers that he really had risen from the grave and he commissioned them to be his witnesses you can have clarity knowing that that is a role, that is a calling that God has placed on your life. And Jesus ascended to the throne right before their very eyes. You can know that despite whatever obstacle you face, that Jesus reigns from heaven for the good of his people, far above every opposition we could possibly face in this world. We don't need to spend our days in the fog of confusion 
and despair because Jesus reigns as king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just want to stand in agreement with your word this morning. You are our king. You reign. You rule. Jesus, we just declare in the face of all opposition, in the face of everything that we fear in this world, whether it's big cultural changes taking place in our country, whether it's people who malign us and belittle us for our faith, Lord. We remember that, Jesus, you reign supreme. You're the king. You are seated in heaven far above all rule and authority, far above Satan, far above the sin that so easily entangles us, far above that great enemy death. You defeated them and you reign. And Jesus, we place our faith in you this morning. We pray that you would reassure our hearts We pray that you'd redirect us to your scriptures. We pray that you'd give us great joy as we realize that this is reality, that this is true. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this as your subjects, part of your kingdom in this world. Amen.